Hey, God, thanks so much uh, um, for this opportunity to uh, sing your praises. Indeed, we need you, Lord. We need you every hour. We need you. Uh, we thank you for your uh, constant and consistent presence in our lives. Even when we uh, don't sense you, uh, you are with us. Uh, and your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And they, uh, you are our protector and our provider. Uh, I'm just so grateful for you, God, in my life and, and in our lives. I want to pray, Lord, as we talk about you today and your grace, uh, that we would appreciate your grace, that we would be extenders of your grace to the people around us, uh, and that we would live a, a life of contentment in your grace. Uh, show us what contentment looks like, God. Uh, keep us from being run by our circumstances. Help us to be uh, solid and firm in our faith. Uh, God, uh, uh, there's people out here who need uh, you in, in special doses today. There's just some extra needs in their lives, physical, relational, whatever those are. I want to pray your blessing over them, and I'd ask that you'd grant them uh, every need uh, so that they can follow you in life to your best. Uh, but as always, God, I want to get out of the way and let you preach in my place. So speak in my place, Lord. Tell us what you need us to hear, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk about uh, more or less in grace here in a second. And, and if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, you know we kind of started that talking about how grace comes into our lives and grace comes out of our lives. That that God has uh, given everybody in, in humanity an opportunity at what's called unmerited favor, grace, something we didn't deserve. Uh, he's given us all, all kinds of opportunities in that. And, uh, and we kind of use this imagery of a hose. I think this is a fire hose of some kind. Uh, someone told me what it was officially, but I forgot. Uh, but uh, I, I picture grace kind of coming like through a conduit, like a hose. It comes down to God, to us, blesses our lives, and then it's meant to flow from us to a world that desperately needs a God uh, and desperately needs to know that he loves them. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not always great at sensing God's grace. Sometimes I go into pity party mode. I don't feel like God is for me at all. Sometimes I'm so wrapped up in everything that has been provided to me in God's grace, I forget about them altogether. Uh, these are just, you know, uh, some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. When that happens, I, I think of it as kind of like that hose getting kinked. Anybody ever kink a hose? Been, been in America lately? Um, <laughs> uh, when we were little kids, my parents used to send us out uh, of our house, and we weren't allowed to come back until the lights on the streets were on. Does anybody remember that? Uh, in today's day and age, it's, you know, not as safe, or maybe parents don't want to let their kids run around, but uh, back when I was a kid, it was like, get out, we'll see you tonight. That's what happened. They would throw, they would throw a sandwich out the window at lunchtime. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And, uh, and so if you wanted to get a drink in our neighborhood, you had to find someone with a hose and you'd go drink out of their hose. Some of my favorite pranks to ever play was the old kink in the hose thing. You ever do that? You stand around the side of the house where people can't see you, uh, and then your friend takes your other friend and says, hey, let's get a drink. And then, you know, they signal you on the other side of the house and you kink the hose where they can't see you. And then, the, and it always worked. I had the dumbest friends. You know, they, the, one, the one friend would be like, oh, man, what happened? The hose must be stopped. Look in there. See if there's anything in there. And then as soon as they started pointing the hose at their face, that they'd signal you again and you'd unkink the hose and just be like, you know. And then you'd run around the house and punch each other and bleed and that was fun. Um, but sometimes I would, you know, and still to this day, sometimes you use a hose. This actually is the hose that goes to the little roller thing that has the hose. And there's, there's already, you can kind of see it, there's a little kink. And if that thing gets pressed over like that, I mean, the rest of the hose ain't going to work. And so sometimes hoses get kinked accidentally. And I think that's what happens in, in our grace existence with God is that 
is that the hose just gets kinked up sometimes. And, and so I want to talk about the, the two primary ways that the hose gets kinked up. The first one is this more, uh, this more thing. Uh, more can kink or block grace. doesn't have to, but certainly uh, we're prone to that. Now, before I start talking about how more can kink or block up grace, let's, let's talk about the areas that grace kind of comes to us in. The first one is in the area of salvation. Everybody say salvation. Okay, so, so God doesn't have to save mankind. God doesn't have to have anything to do with us. Uh, he could just, uh, in, our, you know, in our sin and rebellion against him, he could just judge us. He'd be righteous in doing so, but he loves us. It tells us in Romans 5, 8 that he demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners, while we're at our worst, Christ or God does his best for us in sending Christ to die for us. So that's salvation. If you haven't connected the cross and the story of, of the church uh, together, it starts with the grace of salvation. We don't deserve it, but God gives it to us. And if we accept it, it's ours and we're saved from our sins. Someone say hallelujah. That's a good thing, right? That's a good deal. All right. So that's where grace shows up primarily and, and prominently in Scripture. Another grace is one that comes uh, a little bit later, uh, hopefully uh, much later for all of us in here. But at the end of our lives, we have the grace of glorification. Okay? Glorification is this whole concept of us going from this plane to another plane in eternity and spending our eternal lives in heaven with Christ uh, something that God didn't have to do, but he saw fit to do for us. I'm grateful for it. I'm looking forward to it. I trust you are as well. If you have been saved by grace, then you will be glorified by grace. You with me? And we're not going to talk about that one as much, but we are going to talk a ton today about sanctifying grace. In between our salvation and our glorification is this period of life called sanctification, where we become less like we were before we met Jesus and more like he is now, all right? And this is the process that we get together most weeks and talk about because most of us in here, uh, not, not all of us, I know there's lots of you who need to experience the grace of salvation, but most of us in here probably have experienced that and now we're into this grace of sanctification. And so God wants us to be more like him. We're unable to become like him on our own. It's just not part of our DNA setup. So the Holy Spirit indwells us and, the, and God through the Spirit teaches us, shows us, shapes us, molds us into who Christ is in us. Does everybody make sense of that? So those are the three areas. Salvation, sanctification, glorification. And more can make a mess, especially of the first two, of our salvation and of our sanctification. Here's what I mean. If you're not yet a Christian, you having lots of stuff, more than you need, which, by the way, is pretty much an American condition. Everybody gets that, right? Like even the poorest Americans are richer than a good chunk of the earth's populace. All right, so if, if we're American, we usually have, relatively speaking, more, and that more inhibits our appreciation of our need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. Like, and let's go away from the material stuff. Sometimes we, we have in our minds more moralistically. How many times have you talked to someone who's not yet a Christian and are like, I'm a good person? Like morally, I'm on some level that they've made up in their own head <laughs> that is going to somehow secure me a, a place in heaven if there is one. And if there is a God, he'll certainly take me because I'm not Hitler or Dahmer, right? <laughs> and, you know, I'm, if I'm not those guys, I'm rocking it and God's going to take me, okay? So people either have a material wealth that dulls them to their spiritual need or they have a, a moralistic wealth that, that they've tricked themselves into thinking that they don't have a spiritual need and it stands in the way of them experiencing salvation or saving grace. But sanctification, having more in sanctification, man, that's a problem too. Uh, I, I think uh, 
I'm always amazed at, at the foxhole Christians, if you've ever heard me say that before, but there's lots of people when strife and, and, and less comes to life, there's, there's Christian pituitary gland just kicks in. I don't know if that's the right thing at all. I just made a pituitary gland a part of a sermon. Way to go, Mark. But, they, but their, their Christianity, their sensitivity to the Lord kicks in. Why? Because until then, they hadn't needed him. Because everything was going great. I'm American. Got a job. I don't go to bed hungry, you know, for the most part. I'm healthy and all those things. And it's only when hard times comes that God even becomes a part of their, their life experience. More can kind of dull us in our sanctification to our need for God. But we just got done singing, oh, I need thee. Lord, I need thee. It's true. If you don't have Jesus yet, you need him. If you do have Jesus, guess what? Still need him. And God wants to help you if more is blocking his grace. This guy Solomon, speaking of more, Solomon had more than any of us will ever have. Solomon was like, uh, uh, he was the king of Israel, uh, you know, uh, at the very beginning of the nation of Israel having kings. He was the third guy in. There was Saul, then David, his dad, and then Solomon. And Solomon was the most blessed of all the kings of Israel in all of their history. He was like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and probably like five of the other top ten, you know, richest guys in the world all rolled into one. I mean, he just had everything. And he didn't, listen, he didn't prohibit himself from experiencing anything that his riches could bring him. I mean, parties and palaces and, and, and owning companies and I mean, he just, he just had much, and he got to the end of his life. You remember what he said? He wrote this book called Ecclesiastes. It's in your Bible. It's right there in the middle probably, right after Psalms. And he, he had all this stuff, and you know what he said about it? Verse 2 of his letter, his, his book, he says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything I had was stupid. It's a real, you know, uplifter, that book. But it's, it's telling. He says, you know, I'd had, I had more in terms of what the world would say more was, but it wasn't more at all. Now, I don't want to talk about that today. I've already t- spent too much time on it. Let's talk about this one. This one I want to talk about today. Certainly, another kink in the grace hose could be experiencing less, having less. Less can block grace. Let's go back to the salvation thing. Have you ever talked to someone who said, well, if there is a God, why would he let bad things happen to good people? Anybody said that? You know what they're looking at? They're looking at the lesser, the glass half empty side of the existence of God and his involvement in the world. Now, I would submit to you that I, in my theology, have come with the glass half full. Here's what I appreciate, that none of us deserves anything, that all of us should just be smudges on the carpet right now because none are righteous, no, not one, and God is a righteous and, and, and holy God, and so he doesn't have to give us, and this is something that's so hard for us in, in America and in our, in our American cultural entitlement. He did, we aren't owed anything from God and that we live and move and have our being is an amazing grace all by itself. Is everybody with me on that? And so if you come at that end, I remember, I remember going to my grandfather's house, and he had these binoculars that used to sit in front of this big, huge picture window, and it was the only thing to do. You could either do that or go push the lawnmower, uh, you know, the riding lawnmower. My sisters, we couldn't put it, turn it on. We were too young. But we would just push the riding lawnmower around the yard. How, how, I mean, that, those were long Saturdays, people. <laughs> but when we got tired of pushing each other around on the lawnmower... <laughs> so lame. We would go in and look through these binoculars. One day, I don't know how old I was, eight or nine years old, I looked at the binoculars and I said, I wonder what it looks like if I flip them around. Have you ever looked through the other end of the binoculars? Everything that was so big looking through those small parts has now, like, like I, I would look at the, I would pan the, the, the room, the living room that we were in, and I was like, that piano's about this big now. Because if you look at the lens 
from the other direction, everything's getting really small. Well, this is, this is kind of glass half full, glass half empty stuff. People come to the, the God question as not yet Christians, and they're kind of looking at them through the other end of the binoculars. And they're not seeing that the amazing grace of God, as we understand it, is what gives us our existence and the good things that any of us have. And Anyway. Now, it's the same thing or similar thing to this in our sanctification process. How many of us as Christians have gone through a time where things seemed to be less? Things were much harder. And in those times, we strived for a while at least to hold on fast to our faith and cling to God and pray the prayers and do all those things. But then eventually, we kind of got to the end of our rope. We're like, hey, this isn't working out. And so then we started in with the things that the Bible says not to do. We started worrying. We started working. We started trying to manipulate the situation on our own, apart from waiting on God and his answers to our prayers. Yeah, um, less can kind of do that. In fact, if, if we have less for too long, you know what people do? They walk away from God altogether. They shake an angry fist or raise a middle finger to the Holy One. And they're just like, hey, it didn't work out because you didn't rescue me on the day that I wanted rescue, the way I wanted rescue to happen so on and so forth. Are you with me? Yeah. These are, these are huge kinks, man. More and less, grace problems. Grace problem makers. That's why I want to preach to you today about this. This whole idea of, of, of life being lived with God as our enough. That's why we are called to live a life of God being enough. A life of Christ's sufficiency. We're going to get to that as Paul talks about it today here in Philippians 4. I believe that the scriptures teach us that God is enough. In fact, everything that God allows in our life, the more and the less and everything in between, is, is, is his classroom for us to see and to always remember that he is sufficient. He's our enough. He, he's, the, he's the one who uh, uh, gives us the I'm good life. Has anybody ever striven for or, or longed for the good life? I mean, it's the subject of rap songs and, you know, the good life is painted as this picture of, you know, uh, uh, yachts and, uh, you know, booze or whatever. I mean, does anybody know what I'm talking about? The, the American ideal. In fact, that's what the Constitution says we get, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The good life, right? And so... Uh, our culture has always upheld this idea of the good, loaf, good life. I'm, I'm just striving for the good life. But I'm, I'm here to tell you the Bible teaches something uh, a little bit different. The Bible teaches that we need to strive for the I'm good life. The good life is all contingent on our circumstances. Yachts, beaches, money, uh, peace, health, all those things. Circumstances, those, those determine the good life. The Bible talks about the I'm good life. The, uh, even though everything else is going skawonky out here, I'm good. It's all good. I'm full. I'm satiated. I'm satisfied because God in me, Christ in me, is suffice for whatever I face in life. I'm a big guy, and I don't know why this is, but people love to feed big people. <laughs> it's probably how we got this way. I don't know. But like Eleanor's mom, before she went to be with Jesus... Uh, she didn't like the fact that I was a big guy, but she'd always kept trying to put food in my face. Here, try this. Here, try this. 
And I would often tell her, hey, mom, no, thank you. No, I can't, I, really, I can't. I can't, because I'm full, I'm good. Sometimes I did it because she put nuts in the, bar, or the brownies. But uh, I don't like nuts. But, uh, but that whole state of, you know what, can't fit anything else in. Every, I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's good, I'm good. Because I have Jesus, and he has me. Jesus taught us to pray that even. He said, uh, when you pray, pray this. Give us this day a whole truckload of bread, right? Give us this day bread for a year. Give us this day your favorite kind of bread. Think about that for a second. I like pumpernickel. No, he didn't say any of those things. What did he say? When you pray, pray this. Give us this day our, give us what we need. Give us what we need. It says in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, it says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. He says, Give me uh, neither poverty nor riches. He says, Feed me with the food that is, what? Needful for me. Just give me enough. And why? Because, verse 9, Lest I be full and I deny you and say, Who is this God you speak of? I don't need him. I've got all I need by myself. Or lest I be poor, and I say, hey, God's not providing for me. I'm going to have to go and get for myself. And I steal and I profane the name of God. The writer of this wisdom literature, he's a guy by the name of Agur, one of the only parts of uh, the Proverbs that we don't attribute to Solomon. But he says, hey, man, just give me what I need. Don't distract me with more. Don't kink my hose, my grace hose with less. Just give me what I need. Another way of saying this, this I'm good life, it's the contented life. The contented life. The life that's marked by, you know what, Jesus is enough. I'm good. No matter what my circumstances, I'm good. How you doing with that? I had to study this week. I'll be honest with you, I had two weeks to prepare this sermon and it didn't come together until yesterday at three o'clock because I just wasn't... uh, stepping in line with what Jesus was trying to have me say to you today. Um, I don't know why. Maybe I was discontent myself. I don't know. Uh, But it's hard sometimes to be content. Sometimes I'm thinking, you know, I don't want to preach contentedness. That might make people think I'm saying go ahead and be lazy. I mean, it says in the Bible to be like an ant. This is Proverbs 6, you know, to go out there and be diligent and try hard. But that's not what I'm I'm preaching against today. I want you to do the very best you can. But isn't this true? Sometimes we do our very best, but still is not enough. We still struggle. Our circumstances don't change. We're forced to just wait and trust. I'm not great at that. I don't know how you are. I mean, I can do it for a little while in certain areas, but there's some areas I'm just not really great at it. I don't trust in the Lord with all my heart. I certainly lean on my own understanding. I forget in all my ways to acknowledge him. And I kind of miss his path. Are you with me? Yeah. Ask yourself in your marriages, in your parenting, moms and dads, in your jobs, in, in your homes and in the material blessings that God's given you. You good? Are you content? Is it enough? I want to talk about contentment today. I want to hold it up for uh, us as the way that life should be lived. And in doing so, I want to talk about the ways that contentment can change us. 
Some of you are like, I don't know if I want contentment, Mark. I like worrying. I'm good at it. Well, I hope after we talk about just two things, three verses, a few more, but just three verses principally, uh, that you find yourself saying, you know what, God, that's what I want. I want to rest in you. I want to have you as my sufficiency. So let's talk about these two things. The first thing we want to talk about today in the area of contentment is understanding this. Contentment leads us to a better perspective on life. It leads us to understanding life from a different angle, from a different perspective. It, it gives us that glass half full as opposed to the glass half empty optimism that God wants us to walk through life with. I'm not talking about denial. I'm not talking about, you know, just disregarding the hard things in life. One of our values here as a church is authenticity. We don't want a fake spirituality that's just all platitudes and coffee cups. You know what I'm talking about? You know, verses. I don't want that. If you're having a hard time, have a hard time. But in the midst of your hard time, have a confidence and assuredness in the goodness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. In the hard times that come in your life, press harder into him. Make him the focus of your life. Learn from him the things that we can't learn in times of plenty. Contentment. Confidence in in God and him being enough. It leads us to a better perspective on life. So let's learn from Paul. Here we go. I rejoiced. That word rejoice or some form it occurs 16 times in this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Philippi. Just so you know, Paul wrote most of the back of your New Testaments. He visited a whole bunch of places around the Mediterranean Rim and over uh, three or four missionary journeys. And uh, in the time that he went out there, those three or four times, he got to plant lots of churches in different places. He planted one here in Philippi. And uh, he's particularly excited about this group of believers, okay? As he talks about his life with them, his life uh, uh, separated from them, he's talking about joy over and over and over again. And 16 times he uses that word rejoice or some form of it here in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now uh, that now at length or after a long time you have revived your concern for me. He says, you are indeed concerned for me, but you have had no opportunity. When he's saying you revived your concern for me, he says, you guys sent me some money. You guys gave me a gift. In fact, if you keep reading, you find out that gift came from his buddy Epaphroditus who had traveled from Philippi to see Paul where he was. And so uh, the Philippians had, you know, scratched together a little something-something for Paul, and, and Paul's writing his thank you note. You ever done that? You ever had gotten something from somebody, and you're like, oh, thank you so much for the hairdryer, or whatever it was, right? Well, this is Paul's thank you note. And he says, listen, I know you're always concerned for me, but for whatever reasons, whether it was because we didn't have a courier, or whether you didn't have the money uh, for a time, you, know, you haven't always been able to give, but now you have been able to give. Here we go, verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's like, hold the phone here. I'm not saying that I was over here just waiting, you know, by the mailbox for your gift to arrive so everything could be okay because even as things were absent your gift, I was cool. I was okay. I was, because he says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be what? Content. It's the Greek word autarkes or autarkes. Uh, it's auto, which means self, and our case, which means like sufficient or standing. And basically means uh, I'm, I'm, self, I'm self-sufficient, I'm self-standing. Now, just before you get worried that Paul's like relying on himself, uh, in a few verses he's going to say, I could do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Heard that one before? Yeah. So he's not talking about his self-sufficiency. He's just saying, hey, listen, in my relationship with Christ, I'm good. Appreciate the gift. But even if I had nothing, I'm still good. Now, he writes all of this, this thank you note stuff, 
uh, and says that I am not in need in a time where he actually is in great need. Does anybody know where Paul's writing this, this letter to the Philippians from? He's in jail. He's in jail. Now, I don't know if you've been incarcerated. Many people uh, have been. Uh, maybe one of, you're one of them. Uh, I don't think I would enjoy jail particularly. Uh, I don't like you telling me what to do on the outside, you know, outside of jail, right? Uh, but if you're in there, you've got to do whatever you, you know, you're told to do. Um, he's, he's, oh, listen, he's been through so much in his journeys with Christ. Uh, he's probably now either on the way to Rome or in Rome itself uh, because, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's been incarcerated for preaching the gospel. And he's actually, if he's in Rome, he's, he's like months, days maybe, uh, from being convicted of crimes that would end in his death. Paul's going to become a martyr. But look what he writes about. He has, he has an opportunity to scratch out a note to his friends in Philippi and thank them for this gift. And does he spend his, you know, four pages of email uh, talking about how lousy it is in prison? No. Look what he says in chapter 2. This is what he says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Read, I love jail. Jailhouses rock. Elvis. He says, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. It's actually the, the, the Greek there is praetorian guard. That's the Roman guard. That's like the guards in Rome. That's why we think this is from Rome. Through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Just so you can picture prison back then. It wasn't like going down to Falkenberg. You had your own cell, you know, gen pop, all that stuff. You were a prisoner in someone's home, but they would send a rotation of soldiers so that you were never not chained to two dudes. I mean, picture that. You're just kind of, a soldier's job is to go and just be chained with another one of your soldier partners to one guy in whatever house he's staying in. And uh, people could come and, and, you know, provide this guy food. It's not like the government today provides for our prisoners and all that stuff. Uh, but you couldn't move until your trial came, and that's how they watched you. No bars, just two dudes and some chains. Paul's like, are you kidding me? You're going to rotate some fellas who have to be chained to me all day? Oh, the gospel is coming. Oh, we're not even going to, I'm not even going to start, you know, with platitudes. We're just going to, I'm going to start preaching. And he does. There was probably 20 soldiers in the rotation of, of watching Paul. And he says, listen, every one of them served the gospel. He says, this is what he says about jail. How great is jail? God chains pagans to me on a daily basis. He says, listen, not only that, verse 14, most of the brothers, <laughs> he's speaking about his cohorts in the faith, he says, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. I mean, I don't know how long Paul had been trying to convince these people to share their faith with their friends. Hey, this is what it is to live your faith out and to talk to people about Jesus. But it took him going to prison and sharing with hardened prison guards from Rome to finally uh, convince these people on the outside that, hey, maybe I could do that. As for most of the brothers, I've become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I love prison. I'm getting more done in here than I was getting done on the outside. I'm sharing Christ with those chained to me. The people I was trying to convince to share Christ are now doing it because I'm sharing Christ with those chained to me. Such a deal. Don't you love it when people are optimistic in the midst of a storm? I mean, like genuinely, not just platitudes and saying what they know they're supposed to say, but genuinely being like, you know what, isn't this great? God's going to use this somehow. 
God's going to make much of this mess that is my life. Eleanor and I went apartment shopping when we were uh, engaged to be married. I made $12,000 a year as the junior high uh, youth pastor intern at my little Baptist church in central Illinois. And so there wasn't a whole lot of scratch to uh, spread around. So I had a, a $250 budget uh, for my apartment. Uh, it was 1992, but uh, $250 did not go that far then either. So we were looking at some pretty, <laughs> pretty nasty spots, and this one place we went to was in the basement. You remember that one? We went to this basement apartment in this old house uh, in the older part of town, and we walked in. It looked like a dungeon, like without the chains and, you know, prisoners uh, there. It was just a dungeon. Uh, there was just a little slit of a window. It was all bricks. They hadn't done anything to finish out the walls. It was dank and musty. There was a, uh, if I remember right, just a little bathroom off in the corner, uh, you know, Open floor plan. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I remember Eleanor walking through there and just, uh, you know, making lemonade out of these lemons and just being like, oh, look, there's a window we could put curtains on. I was like, no, we'll probably not be able to see if you do that. But uh, we didn't get the apartment, but I appreciated and have for the last 24 plus years appreciated my wife's optimism. She, she, she sees things, and, and God's blessed her with that grace. Some of you may have that. Some of you may not. Some of us, when the going gets tough, uh, we don't get going. We get surly. We get indignant. Uh, we get difficult to handle. <laughs> and we drag everybody else down in our spiral. Uh, just so you know, this isn't what we've been called to in Christ. In fact, I will tell you, and this isn't meant to be like, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, a smack or something like that. I'm not, I'm not an angry preacher, but I'm just, I'm, I call it like it is. If, if we constantly crater in the midst of our crises, well, we're not really seeing Jesus for who he is. He, he's not really our Christ. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, he's our savior. He's our deliverer. And in, in those situations where we just deny his existence or refuse to acknowledge him, we're limiting his power, and that's not what God's called us to. He wants us to live like Paul. He wants us to have this, this open and more uh, positive perspective on things. Again, not in denial of the things, but just looking for the good that he's going to provide. Look what happens next. It says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He's talking about these, these people who have been emboldened by him, but others from goodwill. Wait a minute. Hang on. Can you go back there? Some people were doing God's work for the wrong reasons. Aren't you grateful that that never happens anymore? That people don't, you know, uh, completely controvert the work of Christ for their own selfish gains? I'm so grateful that that never happens anymore. If you're, not, if you're new, I'm being very sarcastic right now. That's what's happening. It still happens to this day. And Paul was a victim of it. Look what it says in verse 16. The latter do it out of love. The people who are doing it legit... It was out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They're doing it in concert with me. But the, the former, it says in verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry. They're not sincere. They're thinking only to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're talking about the gospel, but they're just trying to take my chair. They're just trying to get my spot, my market share, whatever you want to call it. And so here's where everything changes in Philippians. So Paul says, so here's what we're going to do with these guys. We're going to find them. And we're going to catch him in a dark alley, and we're going to knock the snot out of him, and that's how we're going to deal with this. Is that what he says? No, he doesn't say that at all. He says this. What then? 
It's kind of like a Greek, well, oh well, okay. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In that I say, or in that I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice, he says. Man, you ever met that person who's like, it's all good? Ever met that guy? Hey, how's it going, man? Hey, it's all good. Oh, hey, I'm sorry I wrecked your car. Hey, it's all good. Hey, uh, you know, your house burned down. Oh, it's all good. That's Paul. Yeah, people are trying to get a leg up on me while I'm in prison. Some people are doing good things for wrong reasons. But you know what? As long as God wins, I don't care. As long as people come to Christ, it's all good. Contentment leads us to a different perspective in life. I hope we can have that today. And then contentment finally leads us to this thing that I've been talking about all morning, this Christ sufficiency. Uh, This is the part I really wanted to talk about, and this is where God's convicting your pastor uh, because it's this verse that we all know and sometimes abuse. Here we go. Let's read it together. He says this, continuing his talk about being content. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know how to have less and have more. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned that the secret of facing plenty and hunger uh, abundance and need, I, I, I figured it out. I got the mystery down. And then he says the verse that we all know. It's on the, the eye black of Tim Tebow, all right? Uh, it's, on, it's tattooed across the chest of the champion of the UFC, John Bones Jones, all right? It's this verse. Everybody say it with me if you know it. I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. We love that one. Put it on a coffee cup. That's a good one, right? I got a book in the mail the other day. I already like it because uh, it fit right into my sermon, but it's the most misused verses in the Bible by a guy named uh, Barger Huff. I hope I'm saying that right. This guy wrote a book on the, on the verses that we use as platitudes in the Christian faith. Things like, uh, and we know that those who love God, uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. That's Romans 8. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. The plans to give you hope in the future. That's Jeremiah. Every, all these verses that we just throw out, um, and don't always think about in the context that they were written in, but then this is one of them. He writes about it in his book. This is the part that we love, especially as American Christians. I can do all things, full stop. We love that one. Why? Because we love winning, right? I will claim that verse when it's time to win. I want to conquer my foes, triumph over my enemies. I can do all things, Right? And then kind of in a silent, more hushed tone, we say, through Christ, you're good, you're strength. But we love that. Oh, I can do all things. Here I go. This is kind of a hallmark verse for people in the prosperity gospel. You've heard me rail on it. Let me do some more. Here we go. Prosperity gospel says that Jesus came so that you could uh, be healthy, wealthy, and happy. He came to make you physically healthy. He came to make you materially wealthy. And to make sure that you were personally happy. That's what they say the gospel's about. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, the gospel is not about us. You're like, wait a minute, I thought it was. Well, indirectly, it's about us. But it's about us bringing glory to God. It's not man-centric. It's God-centric. It's not about our happiness and our health and our wealth, which God is more than... Uh, you know, uh, graciously given us, most of us in here, okay? Everybody with me? But that's not his end game. His end game is not our well-being. 
Let me say that again in case you missed it. God's end game is not our well-being. It's his glory. Some of you don't like that. Because you've been taught this verse and other verses to just to make God kind of the, the means to an end. I want to get everything that God can give me, and if I've got to pay him homage and allegiance, then I'll do that. But make sure I get what I'm supposed to be getting. And so we go to God for what he can give us. Get this. This is huge. We go to God and we honor God and we serve God for what he can give us, not just because he is God. So what happens when God doesn't give us what we want, what we expect, what we think we're entitled to? Well, then we're out on him because it's conditional on his provision, our worship. So let's not get this one wrong. Let's not prosperity gospel this thing up and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. As in, I'm going to do whatever I want to do or whatever I uh, sense, you know, is necessary in my life and God will help me do that. Here's what it means in the context. And if you haven't followed me so far, maybe this will help. In the context of talking about contentment, here's what Paul's really saying. I can do contentment in all things through Christ who strengthens me. You get that in the context? He says whether it's in high or low places, whether it's in rich or in poor, abundance and in less, I've figured out that the key to life is being content in him in all things as he gives me the strength to be content in him. Are you with me now? Do I think that anything is impossible for God? No, that's in there too. Nothing's impossible with Christ. But do I think that he wants us to always win? Apparently not. I haven't. Have you? Does he allow hard things to come into our lives? Apparently so. I've had them. Have you? Paul had them too. You want to read what he had? Here's what his hard things were. He's talking to his friends in Corinth here in his second letter to him. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I've received from God. Here's what Paul's saying. I know I'm kind of special. God's been using me in ways that he hasn't been using other Christians. I'm setting up churches. I'm seeing people come to Christ. He's speaking through me to the rest of the church. It's kind of a big deal. But to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me from thinking that this is all about me, here's what he has allowed. He's allowed a thorn that was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming what? Conceited. Three times, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. I asked God to give me relief. We don't know what the thorn was. It could have been a physical ailment. It could have been a person. Uh, it could have been a combo of the, of the two. I don't know what it was, but it was something that was making, listen, and this is what's so hard for me to understand. Why would God ever thwart or seemingly thwart my efforts to serve him by, by allowing something to happen to me that, that brings me low. I'll tell you why. To keep you low. To keep you humble and me humble. To keep us in this understanding of God is my enough. Paul gets that. Verse 9, he says this. This is what God said to me. Now, we're almost done. Everybody read these words with me. You ready? Because this is the whole sermon right here. I probably could have just read this. We could have gone home. But I talked a lot. Here we go. My, everybody read it. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
okay? God is going to ordain, allow, appoint, however you want to call it, certain things to happen in your life so that you in that classroom of weakness can learn of the power of his, uh, his presence in your life. Now, l- listen, don't read that, that, that there's ever a diminished power of Jesus, that his power is anything less than perfect. His power is always perfect. It's just you and I don't learn it as, as it's pre- in its perfect form until we've gone through something where we really need it. Does that make sense? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let me read you this last verse since it's the last service. It says this, for the sake of Christ, I am content with what? With weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Did he cover them all? He says, for when I am weak, then read, in Christ I am strong. Oh, that I could just figure that out, that you and, you and I could just figure that out. That we would come to every situation in life, no matter if it's more or less, and we would just say, you know what, God, I'm just with you. Whatever's going on, teach me, use me, show me, but it's just you. I want you. I don't know. I don't want what you can give me. I want you. Lead me to that life. I stood down in this corner uh, Friday morning. I got to marry a couple, uh, uh, and, uh, and I got to say these words. Many of you who have been married, uh, who, who are married, said these words. Uh, I, so-and-so, whatever your name is, take so-and-so uh, as my awfully, I'm just kidding, lawfully wedded whatever, um, to have and to hold from this day forward. And then there's all those qualifiers, ready? For better or for, in richer or for, in sickness and in, okay. <laughs> How do, I've never been to a wedding where people didn't say some form of that. They always say it in mine. I've done like 200 of them, okay? So people say that stuff. How, how are we doing that as a culture? It's coin flip, right? As to whether people actually keep that promise or not. Coin flip. But everybody promises it. You know, I think it's in the vows. I, I think it's, it has a lot to do with this whole picture that we have of, of, of Jesus being the bridegroom and this church being the bride. That when we get into a relationship with Christ, it's for better and for worse. Both are coming. It's for richer and for poorer. Yeah, both are coming. It's in sickness and in health. Both are coming. The constant in, in whatever, in more or less, the constant is Christ. And all, listen, as a follower of Jesus, I want to learn this. I'm growing in this. I pray that you are too. I just want Christ. I just want him. I want him to be enough. And I don't want the the distractions of the more and the less clamping down and kinking up that hose of grace. I just want Christ. I pray that for you, and I'll pray that for you now. Can we pray? Hey, God, thanks so much for your grace. Forgive us, Lord, when we lose sight of it, when all the blessings you've given us make us dull to our need for you. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for when we lose sight of it uh, in, in, the, in the moments of life where we have less. Uh, we just read in your scriptures, God, that these are the times that you want us to press into you all the more. We want to cling to you and need to cling to you all the more. Help us in that, God. When the storms rage, may we, like Peter, fix our eyes on you strive for you and you alone. I pray for every 
uh, not yet Christian in this room, uh, that soon you will bring them face to face with your grace and with their need, and that you'll draw them past their arguments of more or less uh, into a relationship with you. But for the rest of us, God, who sit here today having a relationship with you, I pray that you would keep us focused on you and you alone, not on what you can give us, not on what you have kept from us, but on on the hope that is our life with you. May we see you as our enough, God. And may you take us through every moment, every situation, every circumstance of every day. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. Pray it's a good one. May you walk in grace and in the contentment that grace brings. Have a great week. God bless you as you go.